So with that drinking game came a lawsuit. Really? (laughs) There was a gentleman online who was selling his own power hour. He was able to get it in dispensers, so he was selling in brick and mortar. And he then applied for a trademark for the term power hour, which he shouldn't have gotten the trademark. But the trademark office, I guess is not full of partiers because they didn't know about it and they issued the trademark without a problem. And so then he sends me a cease and desist and I can no longer sell my albums or play my live shows anymore. I had to take down my YouTube videos about it. And I did not sit back and let that happen. I had to free Power Hour for the whole world. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of it. doesn't matter how badly you got beaten down. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go with your gut. <laughs> I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. Can you state your full name in three or four sentences about who you are and what you do? I am Ali Spagnola. I am an artist and I create internet art. Internet art, what's that mean? That means I'm your typical YouTuber, but then I give it a really heady title. (laughs) Okay. Maybe can you tell me like uh, a little bit about what were some of your first like creative pursuits? Was was it music? Was it art? Like how how did it first um, come up in your life? This goes back to when I was three or four. Yeah, it was four that I was first sent to piano lessons. And this is because by some lucky break, my grandfather hit the lottery for not a huge amount, but a significant enough amount that he gave my mom a baby grand for her house. And so I grew up with a baby grand and I would plunk around on it, you know, at three. And then by four, I was sent to piano lessons. And that was extremely transformative for me. I feel very lucky to have grown up with that opportunity. How did that develop as like you grew older? Uh, I That's about the time where lots of people were taking piano lessons, you know, kids being forced into it <laughs> with me. It never felt forced. There were certainly times where I'd go to my lesson and I hadn't practiced, but I've always felt motivated myself mostly to practice. And so it was effortless. I feel there. I feel lucky that uh, it wasn't something that I had to work at or I was working at it, but I enjoyed it. So it was very clear that I was going to stick with it. And then around the time when you would join high school band, that's when I went into, you know, expanding my instrumentation and I picked up the guitar and taught myself and I joined. I was um, in the marching band for playing percussion. So you really expanded this, this love of music Um, Could you also lead me up into getting involved in musical theater too? Yeah, that was another thing around that same time in high school. I was playing, I was super into music. I still am. Musical theater is uh, my passion. I feel like it doesn't come through enough on my channel because I know that I may turn some people off being like such a Broadway nerd, but certainly, um, yeah, that's what I'm super into and, and performing on stage is just so rewarding. So I'm super into this type of music and performing on stage. And I lived in Pittsburgh and there was this opportunity to go to college a year early to try it out at Carnegie Mellon University. And they're really well known for their musical theater program, which is 
very exclusive. It's they let in 10 people ish a year. That is extremely exclusive. Yes, wow. which is insane. But if you go a year early, they let in hundreds and you can try it out and be around other people that are super passionate about it too. And so that summer was very transformative for me. I made a ton of great friends where I feel like I wasn't flourishing um, in friend circles in high school. It, that's another way of saying I was uncool. I was yeah. very uncool in high school. And then I went to this basically summer camp for musical theater and I was cool and it was so fun. And so that convinced me then I wanted to go to Carnegie Mellon for my college career. And I did early decision. I, I didn't apply anywhere else. I said, I'm going here. I mean, if you accept me and luckily they did. Wow. What did it feel like to be accepted? Ooh. Okay. So I realized that I didn't want to do musical theater, but I definitely wanted to go to Carnegie Mellon. So I applied for art. So I had to put together a whole art portfolio, visual pieces versus the music. And yeah, that was a huge pivot for me to decide. It's crazy that the location was what drove what I wanted to do versus what I was specifically doing. Um, How did you put together a portfolio like that? I was already interested in that kind of thing. And so it was really just sort of gathering all the nutty art stuff that I was already doing. What was some of that nutty art stuff? So my dad owns a beer distributor and in the back, he has an, had an empty warehouse that was, you know, just sitting there. And I was like, I would love to transform this. And I made it my cool space and it was, I called it the lounge. And I um, made paintings that fit on the walls. So it looked like stuff was coming out of the walls. And I like interior de- decorated it in a way that was really compelling and fun. And all my friends would come there and hang out wow. in high school. It seems like a lot of foreshadowing. <laughs> yeah, right? Uh, absurd that, that that's how I spent my time in high school. It seems a little odd. I guess that's why I wasn't the coolest kid because who's doing that? Uh, so I'm pulling together my portfolio and realized, I mean, this counts, right? I'll show them this. And... I even I made a website about the location too. So I was doing web design and, and there's sort of like an interactive element to it, which is, yeah, I think unexpected for them. And so I'm, I'm glad that I could convince them that, that that was worthy of being able to go to their school. But it was also cool to reframe that, oh, what I was doing was art. I can count myself as an artist. What was some of the stuff that you were putting on YouTube and how did you discover YouTube? This was interesting because I was still doing music at the time. I didn't want to neglect that. And I was going to a school that was also prestigious for music. So I tried to fit music classes in. I actually had a minor in music theory, but I didn't end up finishing it. So it's not on my degree, but I was certainly taking classes in that direction and writing my own music and performing live. And so I was playing my own original stuff in coffee shops and trying to figure out the marketing aspect of that and getting people to come and and building an indie musician career. Uh, I do say that my viral moment on YouTube didn't come till way later. So I, I was really working on that platform without getting reward, but I still was getting exposure other places. My first viral moment in general was Reddit fueled, honestly which I had written a drinking game. And so that seemed to go over well with that crowd. And they were really interested in that. And so that helped me grow on Twitter. And that, you know, kept me motivated to keep reaching more people. And I wrote 61 minute songs about drinking. You know, it's all stories from me and my college friends. And then the first time I launched that show, there was 
a line around the block. It was crazy really? popular. Yeah, it was so easy to, that like word spread on Canvas like wildfire and it was just the thing to do, my power hour. And, and I would do it every year at homecoming even. So with that drinking game came a lawsuit. Really? (laughs) There was a gentleman online who was selling his own power hour. It was basically a PowerPoint DVD that burped every minute. There was no music. It just was the game. He was able to get it in dispensers. So he was selling in brick and mortar. And he then applied for a trademark for the term power hour, which he shouldn't have gotten the trademark. But the trademark office, I guess is not full of partiers because they didn't know about it and they issued the trademark without a problem. And so then he sends me a cease and desist and I can no longer sell my albums or play my live shows anymore. I had to take down my YouTube videos about it. And I did not sit back and let that happen. I had to free power hour for the whole world. So uh, talk to a lawyer and it would be like a couple thousand bucks, but okay, fine. We'll just do that and and get this cleared up and then I can keep being an artist. And it took months and ended up being $30,000. $30,000? Yes. How could you pay for that? This was, well, at the time I was also, you know, I had a job. I was working actually two jobs and um, it was, yeah, I basically just like put the bill for this thing. It was over time. So the whole thing would be like, okay, a couple thousand dollars. Okay, a couple more. And the more you get down a tunnel, you have to justify Having gone that far, instead of turning around, you want to go to the end, even if you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, So I think it's called sunk cost fallacy, where I'm like, well, I already got this far. And so by the end of it, I didn't even realize how bad it was going to be. Right. But we won. (laughs) And this whole story had reddit going nuts right because there's this this gal fighting for your freedom to party (laughs) against this mean guy who is trying to own Power Hour. And so because of that story, I was able to launch an Indiegogo and raise $40,000. Thank goodness, there goes my debt. (laughs) So now, can you track me up to a few years later when you have your first, second, first viral moment? (laughs) Yes, this was after years and years on YouTube, putting out my best work or... I didn't even know at the time I was thinking maybe this isn't good because it isn't reaching people and the algorithm says it isn't good. And I basically gave up. I said I had been working at top speed, close to burnout. I I can't do any better than this. And, um, you know, the definition of crazy is doing the same thing, expecting different results. So what kind of videos were you making? Um, stuff that I was really proud of and that would take all of my time. I, I was posting once a week and I can't even imagine that now. I don't know how I was doing the quality and volume that I was at the time and still, and still cranking it out. So I basically said, yeah, I'm done. I emailed my editor and I was like, this video that I'm sending you right now is my last one. And I just did something for me. I uh, Billie Eilish's bad guy was really, really popular. It was everywhere. And I was like, ugh, I don't get it. I love Megan Trainer. Uh, kids get off my lawn. What is this new music? And so I just sat down and turned her song into a Megan Trainer song. 
and I knew all of Megan's music, so it was really easy for me to just arrange in a different style. I had a ton of fun doing it. I thought it turned out ridiculous and that no one would see it. it. I knew that this was for me and that's it. And I published it and gave up on YouTube. And then I watched my graph in my analytics just explode. <laughs> <laughs> a thousand percent better than anything I'd ever done before. Saved by the bell, like right at the last moment. The yes. internet comes and saves you again. Again. And then my fur room video blew up to millions of views where it had just bombed and was sitting there doing nothing. And now it got this boost from this other one and people were recognizing my back catalog. Which is crazy because like these styles are completely different. So it's interesting that people would find interest in the music one and then be like, oh, like this, this, this fur room one is cool too. Why, why do you think that happened? Well, I hope it's because they just appreciate me being the host and well, less of a host and more just hanging out with me. I open every video with Hey Best Pally. So I hope that people are feeling like if we ever met, we would just be best buds. And that's why they want to watch my videos because they're hanging out with me. And so what did that do to change your trajectory? Because before you were about to, to leave YouTube forever, but now uh, might be harder to walk away when you finally have this viral moment. So uh, and you're you're here with me today at Playlist Live. So how did that change how you approach YouTube? Yeah, I didn't know where I was walking either. So <laughs> I guess I just walked right back and, and kept at it. I I mean, I would have probably started focusing on other platforms. Funny now because I do just focus on everything. I don't know how that's possible, but my creative process still starts with YouTube. I think, you know, what's my thumbnail and title? What's going to resonate with people there? And and yeah, I'm back all in it and I'm posting every two weeks now. So hopefully that's a little more healthy. It turned out, no, now I just do more elaborate things that fill up the two weeks. Maybe we could also focus a little bit on how you develop the TikTok. Sure. Yeah. TikTok was interesting. Uh, that's another one where I was just sticking with it until something went well, right? I was putting up stuff that I was proud of and that I thought people might appreciate. And then well, I got... A viral hit with a loop that would loop seamlessly. I guess that that really hooked people. And since then, it's yeah, it's been just stay consistent and you'll you'll reach some people. And then I still get comments about that initial for a viral video. Like that's how people still know me, wow. which is so crazy. And what was that viral video? Uh, I played the song from Lamb Chops. It's the song that doesn't end. And so I, I'm just singing it forever because it loops seamlessly. And so you can't tell when it starts or ends. And what uh, what did that do to your, your TikTok account? Uh, it grew me a ton. I think it was around 30,000, maybe it was 300,000, honestly. No, it had to be 30,000 in one go, right? In and one, so, wow. yeah, 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 just from one video. And so... That helped bump up everything I'd done in the past and helped continue the viewership from there. Wow. So so you are on all these platforms. Where are you today with your content? I'm still sitting down and going, what cool YouTube video could I make? And then making it tell the story on different platforms. So repurposing it, shooting in vertical as I'm shooting the YouTube video really thinking about how the story can live in all the different places. But yeah, it still starts with YouTube. What kind of stories are you looking to tell? What cool thing do I want to make next that makes you go, what? <laughs> 
I want to make something that's unconventional and, and just makes you um, makes you think a little weird twist. To myself, I would say, just don't look at any analytics. Just keep making cool stuff. That's really hard to do. Um, it, it's really hard not to tie your personal worth to the views, but in, in the best you can try and do that. And to anyone who's just starting out, uh, I would take a lesson from my power hour days. I was unremarkable as a musician. Uh, there was nothing that that said that I should de deserve the attention of all the other people making stuff and putting it out there. Why me over some other girl strumming a guitar in a coffee shop? And I found the reason why me, right? The thing, whether you want to call it a gimmick or or your your special differentiator, find that, find why you deserve the attention and it will come. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lynn. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Irene Van Berkel, Matt Fernandez, Nay Buchanan, Sophia Donner, David Saidi, Ashley Jimenez, Nicholas Guzman, Aaron Devereaux, Sanessa Gisley, and Lois Choi. Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong, with support from Sarah Hobson, Cherise Tan, Harushi Kanauchi, Kristen Hagelin, Aya Cortez, and Valencia Lu. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen, with support from Aiden Ashworth, Nikki McCalla, Sylvie Wong, and Eric Menno. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand, with support from Tiffany Dang, Yao Liu, and Dina Gabriel. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.